All right, we are continuing our study together in our church's doctrinal statement, and uh, we are in the very last chapter, chapter 32. Now, if you've been here for the last 15 years, uh, you know everything I've said about the confession of faith, <laughs> because it's taken us about that long to get through it. And if you haven't, it's all on tape. You can listen to it all next week <laughs> in all your spare time, right? Um, what is there, Caleb, about six or 700 um, tapes? Yeah, something like that. All right, well, we are in chapter 32, which deals with the subject of the last judgment. We have already looked at paragraphs one and two, and today we're going to look at paragraph three. In paragraph one, it dealt with the certainty of the day of judgment. Notice the first phrase in paragraph one, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness. So there is a very certain particular day that God has appointed for the last day or the day of judgment. And then we saw the one sitting in judgment was the Lord Jesus. We saw the persons being judged were the apostate angels and all persons who live upon the earth. And then we saw the process of judgment, that they will give an account of their thought, words, and deeds, and they will receive their just due in relationship to those actions. Whenever the Bible talks about the day of judgment, it always talks about God judging us according to our works, without exception. And those works indicate whether or not we had saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it very clear that faith, divorced from works or apart from works, is dead. And James says, show me your faith by your works. And so on the day of judgment, uh, God looks at our works and reasons from our works to the existence or lack thereof of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're judged by our works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ and his works. But because justification is always associated with sanctification and the God who saves also transforms, that transformation produces a new course of behavior. And from that behavior that is, manif that is evidence of our sanctification, uh, we can reason to our justification. And so thus we will receive uh, a sentence from God that we are either saved or not saved based on whether we had a transformed life or not, which is always the inevitable and universal result of saving faith in Christ. We then looked at paragraph two, which deals with the purpose of the day of judgment. It says in paragraph two, the very first sentence, the end or the purpose of God's appointing this day is for. And we saw that purpose described. It was for the manifestation of the glory of God's mercy. And it was for the manifestation of the glory of God's justice. The day of judgment is a great revelation of the attributes and the character of God. His mercy on his elect and his justice upon the reprobate. And that purpose is accomplished by the way God disposes of these two groups. With reference to the righteous, they receive everlasting life. They receive joy, glory, and reward. And they will enjoy the presence of the Lord. With reference to the wicked, 
who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will experience everlasting torment and everlasting destruction from the presence of God and his power. Now, having completed our study last time of paragraph two, when we discussed the eternality and the awfulness of hell, we now move to paragraph three, which deals with the timing of the day of judgment. You've all been sitting here wondering, when is it going to happen? And you want me to tell you the date. And I'm not going to tell you the date. There have been <laughs> dozens and dozens of people who have said, this is the date. And um, I remember uh, about a decade and a half ago, Harold Camping predicting 1994. And um, there have been many, many other dates. I hear he's predicting another date now, 2011 or something. Is that right? 2011? Is it? Yeah, 2012, something like that. So anyway, um, all these date setters uh, try to say, based on some sort of mathematical calculations, that it's going to happen here and it's going to happen there. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, and we need to be content with that. So I'm not going to tell you the date because I don't know when it is. In fact, the Son of God says he doesn't know when it is. Only God the Father in heaven knows when it is. And so if Jesus doesn't know, it's pretty foolish for me to claim to know or anybody else. So the paragraph talks, first of all, about the certainty of the day of judgment and the fact that there will be one. And then it talks about the fact that the exact day is not known. Let's read the paragraph together. And then we'll look at the scriptural data that supports it. Notice paragraph three. It says, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment. Why? Well, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So he will have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So what we want to do then is talk about the timing of the day of judgment. So first of all, let's consider together the fact that it is certain there will be a day of judgment. Notice what he says here. Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded there shall be a day of judgment. And of course, the way Christ persuades us that there will certainly be a day of judgment is that he says over and over and over again in his teachings in the gospel that the day of judgment is coming. I mean, uh, Christ talked very, very frequently as we have seen um, in Matthew 25 and, and many other passages about the fact that the day of judgment is coming. So he wants us to know that it is coming. And the question is, is what effect should this have on us? Well, our, the authors of our confession indicate two effects. First, to deter men from sin. And secondly, for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So first of all, then let's consider together the fact that there will be a day of judgment deters all men from sin. Now, the principle here is simply this, is that if you do something 
And you know there's going to be severe negative consequences if you do it. Then it tends to motivate you not to do it, right? And so that's one reason why our children learn to obey us as parents is we tell them, you know, do something. And if you don't do it, I'll paddle your bottom. And um, they go, oh, I don't want a paddling, so I better do it. And of course, uh, accountability uh, constrains behavior. And that's the principle. And when our confession says that it restrains uh, or deters men from sin, uh, the understanding in every man's conscience, including that of the reprobate, that there's going to be a day of judgment, has a restraining effect upon them because they think, you know what, I might get away with this with the law and I might get away with this with people, but God knows. And in every man is a conscience, according to Romans chapter 1 and 2, and in every man is a knowledge that there's going to be a day of judgment. It says in Romans 1 of the ungodly who knowing the judgment of God, that they which do such things are worthy of death. Okay, so even the unsaved know there's going to be a day of judgment. And it's the fear of that that has a tendency upon them to restrain their evil. You know, I often think to myself, uh, you know, I have various opportunities to do things and various desires to do things that are wrong. And I don't do them because I'm a Christian and I realize those things are evil and I shouldn't do them. But I often think about the unsaved, you know, what stops them from doing, you know, all the horrible things that cross their minds. And it is precisely this, the knowledge innately, whether they can articulate it or not, that there is going to be accountability for their actions one way or the other that restrains them from doing evil. Now, for us as Christians, the knowledge that there's going to be a day of judgment and that our works will be brought into judgment also deters us from sin. And the way in which it deters us from sin is the recognition that we cannot live in habitual, ongoing, open, willful, defiant sin and have a good outcome on the day of judgment. So let's look at some scripture passages and we'll expand this a little further. 1 John chapter 2. The book of 1 John. Towards the back of your Bibles, chapter 2 right after first and second Peter. Now, the point that John makes is the same one that James makes, which is the same one that is made throughout the scriptures. And that is, you cannot live in sin and say you have faith in Christ and have that wash on the day of judgment. It just doesn't work. So 1 John chapter 2, in verse 4, He that saith, I know him, I'm a Christian, I know Christ is my Savior, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
And so it's very clear that people who claim to be Christians but live in disregard to the commandments of God as the habit and pattern of their life are not Christians at all. They're lying when they say that they're Christians. Now John develops this theme further in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. 1 John 3, 1 through 10. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So verses 1 and 2 talk about our wonderful privilege, the love we received, the wonderful position we've been given as sons of God, the anticipation we have that we're going to be like him. And so what impact does that have on us? Verse 3, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he, that is Jesus, is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And you know he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he, that is Jesus, is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, as those of you who have been here for any length of time are aware, not long ago I preached through 1 John and we did all the exegesis and the explanation of the meaning of this passage and especially the force of the present tense of the verbs that are contained in it. And what John is saying here is that those who go on living lives of habitual sin that is, the dominating characteristic of their life is that they live in defiance of God's laws instead of the dominating characteristic of their life being that they live in submission to God's laws. Those people are not Christians. And so the point is, is that for us, if we hope to have a good outcome on the day of judgment, then we recognize, oh, look, I just can't go on and on and on in my sin. At some point, I've got to repent and turn from it and live for God or else God is going to adjudicate me as a hypocrite on the day of judgment and cast me into hell. And so knowing there's going to be a day of judgment, knowing I'm going to be judged by my works deters me from sin because going on in sin robs me of any credibility or argument I might have on the day of judgment that indeed I have been justified and sanctified through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus meant when in Matthew chapter 7, he says, not every man who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have not we prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out demons and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I say unto them, depart from me, you 
what? Workers of iniquity. And the, see, the dominating characteristic of their life is that they were workers of iniquity. They said, Lord, Lord, but they didn't do what God commanded. Now look, every one of us who are Christians still commits sin. But we don't commit sin the way we did before we were Christians. There has been a titanic shift away from a life dominated by sin with occasional excursions into decent behavior to lives now dominated by godly behavior with occasional excursions into sin. And that's what Jesus or, or Paul meant when he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so one of the things that deters me, and I hope you from sin, is knowing that on the day of judgment, what am I going to be judged by? My works. And if I'm just a worker of iniquity, and that's the habit and pattern of my life, then my claim to being a Christian is a sham. And that's also one of the things that helps false professors to realize that indeed that's what they are and they really do need to get saved, is that they realize, you know what? I can't stop sinning. That's all I ever do. It's what my life is characterized by and I'm powerless in the face of it. And they say, well, if I'm supposed to be set free from sin, I'm sure not free from sin. And so they begin to seek Christ. And as a pastor, I've dealt with many people like this who thought they got saved at some point in life, like when they were 18 or 14 or whatever. But then from that time until they were, let's say, 30 or whatever the age is, they just, they just lived for the world and there wasn't any difference between them and all their unsaved friends. And they came to the realization, you know what, I'm not saved after all. And then they get saved. I've dealt with numbers of people like that. How did they come to the conclusion that they weren't saved? Because as they look back over that period, it's like, you know, I'm still in the bond of iniquity. And of course, that's the judgment that Peter passed on Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, wasn't it? He says, you are still in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Even though he professed faith, even though he'd gotten baptized, even though he'd accompanied with the disciples... Uh, that that greed uh, for for money through means of religious manipulation had never been broken. What was he before? He was a sorcerer. He did religious stuff in order to extort money out of people. And then after he became a Christian, what did he still do? Want to do religious stuff to extort money out of people? Right? He offered to give money to Peter for to buy the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he's still fundamentally the same guy. Was still fundamentally the same sins. Now, as believers, most of us struggle with a besetting sin. Uh, we're not the people we were before we got saved. We just lived lives of sin and then we get saved and our lives really are changed. But we have a particular area that seems to just beat us to shreds. And notice the language I used when I talked about the nature of of someone who has a credible profession of faith, and it was that the dominating characteristic of their life is that they live a life of righteousness. But because we have one area that we really struggle hard with, whatever it may be, 
and for every person it's different. Um, that tends to be our focus, and we tend to feel like that we're dominated by that sin, and so therefore, you know, maybe we're not saved. And, and what I would exhort you to do is, is take that one particular sin that you struggle with and put it in the light of the context of the totality of your life and ask yourself, do I, putting that sin in the context of everything else I do, do I fundamentally live a life of righteousness and I have a struggle with the flesh in this particular area or do I just walk in the flesh? as who and what I am as a person. And so often Christians struggle with assurance of salvation because they feel like, well, you know, in this one area, I, I am dominated by sin. And uh, oftentimes God allows that to happen to keep us humble and to keep us seeking and to keep us valuing our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But um, I think what you've got to ask yourself is, you know, are you a sinner across the board? Or do you really obey Christ across the board and you have one area where you really struggle hard? And I think every Christian um, is in the condition of the latter. Um, you know, Peter struggled with the fear of man and he struggled with it for a long time. And... Uh, we see other great men of God, Abraham, struggling with lying. Um, and, uh, you know, various men that we would think, there's no way those guys are saved. Um, yet in Hebrews 11, you see them in the hall of faith. People like Samson, people like Lot. Um, and I don't say those things to comfort you in your sin, but just to encourage you in your faith. Uh, keep pressing on, keep seeking Christ and, and victory over your sins. But what is it that makes you uncomfortable with that sin and to continue to work against it and strive against it? Is it not the knowledge that there's going to be a day of judgment? So when our confession says that it is uh, the purpose of the day of judgment to deter us from sin, it certainly has that effect on me. And uh, I would hope it have that effect on you as well as having that effect on the ungodly um, because they know that there's going to be an accounting as well. But for them, of course, um, it's better for them to commit fewer th sins than greater sins. It's better to die a respectable unsaved person than to die like Adolf Hitler, you know, with the blood of however many millions of people on your hands. Because there are degrees of punishment in hell. And I mean, it's even best for a person who never gets saved to sin as little as possible because then his punishment will be less in hell. There are degrees of punishment. As opposed to living as wicked as he possibly can, he will suffer even greater punishment in hell. So, uh, obviously the day of judgment has deterring effect upon sin. All right. Uh, do any of you men have any questions or comments you would like to make about that subject? All right. Either I was so clear that you have no questions or I was so foggy you don't even know what to ask. Good.
All right. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. Notice verse 10 and 11. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest unto your consciences. So what God is going to do is he's going to take the sum total of our lives, and he's going to say, it was good, or it was bad. And if the sum total of our life is bad, then what do we face? The terror of the Lord. You don't want to face the terror of the Lord. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when his wrath is kindled but a little. Um, Isn't that what it says in Psalm 2? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who who put their trust in him. And uh, so um, the point is, is that when you look, for example, at Matthew 25, and Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, right? When he addresses the sheep, what does he say to them? He only speaks of the good that they did. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and, and you ministered to me. He doesn't mention any of their sins to them because they have none. They were all imputed to Christ and there's none to their account. So there's none to, to, to account for. So for them on the day of judgment, all that is, is, is spoken of is, as our verse says, the things that he did in his body according to what he has done, and it was good. And then the goats on his left hand, he says to them, nothing by way of good that they did. He says, I was in prison and you didn't come to me. I was sick and you didn't minister to me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And all he mentions to them is bad. Right? So he takes the sum total of the reprobate and, and, and it's bad. And he takes the sum total of the righteous and it's good. And on that basis, he disposes of them either into, into heaven or into hell. Come ye blessed and enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or he says, depart from me, you wicked, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's either going to be all good, it's going to be all bad, and that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about God taking 
all the good things we did and weighing them against all the bad things we did and setting them in a balance and see which side's heavier and all the bad things we get chewed out good and proper for those and shamed. That isn't how it works on the day of judgment. All the bad that we did was imputed to Christ and those sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west from us. So what is it that deters us from sin when our sins aren't going to be brought up and called to account on the day of judgment? It is simply this. What deters us from our sins is that our life had better be a life that's dominated by righteousness and can be characterized as good. If we hope to be adjudicated as sheep. And people say, well, well, how much? Like, is it 49, 51? You don't want to get that close. You want a large margin of safety because the risks of being found to be a hypocrite on the day of judgment are just too great. It's eternal damnation. You don't want to go there. So live for the Lord all you can every time you can, every moment you can. Not that you're resting in your own righteousness, but those are your fruits. Make sure you've got a good basket full. All right, any questions? Roy? You're going off to the true intentions of the heart, which only you know and God knows. And we take pictures for instance, we look at Joseph, and he did everything right. We look at uh, uh, King David, and I mean, if you took the picture of the year that he was basically murdered one of his fellow men and taken his wife, we would think just the opposite. But the true intention of his heart was for God. And so <clears throat> at that point in time, um, the little blips across the screen uh, make um, maybe others look negative or positive, but God's judging on the true intention of heart. Are you intending on living for your Lord and doing your best even though you're failing, or are you living like hell? Well said. And not only the intentions of our heart, but the totality of the picture, as you well said, in that one year, David looked and acted like an unsaved person. But when you stand back and put that year in the context of the totality of his life, the dominating characteristic of his life is that he was a man after God's own heart. So, yeah. And that's the thing is that you can't judge, uh, you know, yourself based on how you did in on any one day. But look back over your life over the last five years, the last 10 years, look over what you were before you were saved and what you are now. And, you know, when you see the dominating characteristics over time, because character is not a snapshot, it's a moving picture, right? At any one point in time, even Hitler may have looked like a sweetheart. He probably did some kindness to somebody on some day, right? And if that's all you saw, you'd say, he's a decent guy. But when you look at the dominating characteristic of his life, you come up with a different, different, uh, different perspective, don't you? So yeah, and, and of course the negative example would be King Saul. 
Yeah, who who did you know a couple of good things, but the dominating characteristic of his life is that he just disobeyed God. All right, well, good. Our time is gone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the fact that there is certainly going to be a day of judgment. And Father, may the knowledge of that deter us from sin. And Father, may you use it in the hearts of even the reprobate to deter them from sin, to restrain the numbers of murders and rapes and robberies and frauds and uh, evil doing, lying that is so prevalent. Uh, Father, the fornication that is so rampant. Father, may even the reprobate fear uh, the day of accountability and be restrained in their sins so that we might be able to live in a reasonably stable and decent society. Father, I pray that you would help us as believers to uh, live for Christ so that we might uh, be able on the day of judgment to lift up our heads uh, without shame and be able to um, say that, yes, we, we have a, abided in Christ, as it says in 1 John 2, that little children abide in him, that when he appear, we may, may not be ashamed at his coming. Father, thank you that you do know the intentions of our heart and the determination we have to do good, even though evil is in our flesh. And Father, we know that your judgment is according to truth. And Father, we rest in that. Thank you, Lord, that the faith that saves also transforms. And thank you for the new lives you've given us and for the longing that you have put in us to live according to the law of God. Not for our justification, but as an expression of our love and our desire to honor our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.